Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Grey's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to this, another episode of the Meet the Barrister series for the Raising the Bar podcast with me, Alana Hughes. In the Meet the Barrister series, I speak to a different guest barrister in each episode and discuss their path to the bar and their practice, as well as any other interesting topic of discussion that pops up in conversation. The aim of this series is to demonstrate that the bar is not a one-size-fits-all sort of profession, as it sometimes is wrongly assumed to be. Barristers come from a wide variety of backgrounds and specialise in many different areas of law. There is something for everyone. Before we get going with the podcast today, I just want to briefly note that this episode is being recorded remotely. I am in my home and my guest in theirs, due to the social distancing and lockdown measures to combat the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And there may therefore be a slight reduction in audio quality in this episode due to the remote recording. We hope you won't mind. My guest today is a barrister who specialises in IP, intellectual property. Specialises is perhaps an understatement as this barrister is a renowned expert in the field and is known for his encyclopedic knowledge of the law. Professor Mark Engelman is Head of Intellectual Property at Hardwick Chambers and is a bencher here at Gray's Inn. Professor Engelman, it is lovely to have you and thank you for joining me today. Alana, thank you very much for allowing me to attend this COVID-19 online discussion. Well, you've just mentioned COVID-19 and I suppose we cannot have our conversation today without acknowledging that we are in the middle of a pandemic right now. How have you been keeping in lockdown? Uh, Very well, actually. Um, I have been holed up, I think is the word I use, uh, in a house on the coast. So I'm very, very lucky, uh, I suspect, compared to a great number of people who don't have the sea to look at. So I have to say it is it is a quite a nice place to be. And the only thing I miss, of course, as I'm sure all barristers miss, is contact with people. Um, but I think we just have to bear with it. Mm. This is a real test for the people person. Those people who enjoy time alone and some peace and quiet are flourishing in the current circumstances. But for those who thrive off of other people and socialising, as many barristers do, this is a tough time. Yes, I think barristers are a generally are a very gregarious bunch of people and they really do enjoy social interaction. So it's an anathema to them to actually be prevented from seeing people. But um, it is what it is, as they say. Mm. Hopefully we can say that we are now over the worst of it and coming down the other side of the mountain and we'll be back to normal as soon as possible. Yes, absolutely, hopefully. I mentioned in my introduction that you specialise in IP law at the bar. Could you discuss your path to the bar, which I know involved working as a research pharmacologist and a solicitor in a Magic Circle firm for many years? Yes, it it is a little unusual, my path, but when you meet barristers generally at the bar, a large number of them, particularly in my chambers, have come from a previous career. Um, Mine, I I started out at university studying pharmacology and continued on um, to work 
within uh, laboratories. Uh, well, I'm very proud to say now was an NHS laboratory. Uh, blood tests at the undertaking blood tests just as a, a lab technician at the Whittington Hospital, and then on to the Royal London Hospital to work on research uh, associated with uh, a, a a disease which produced a great deal of adrenaline in the bloodstream. And there was a question as to how adrenaline affects blood pressure long term in a person. So uh, that. That was at the Royal London Hospital. And then I ultimately ended up continuing in pharmacology at University College, uh, where we were looking at diabetes research. So um, so I, I suppose I, like a, a lot of people at the bar, started in something slightly different. But when it comes to intellectual property, one part of what we do is, is we look at patents, which are primarily scientific documents and therefore a grounding in science is and usually in the form of a first degree is a prerequisite to practicing at the intellectual property bar. And so how did it come about then that you moved from working in a lab in a science and research focused role to a legal one at the bar? Well you know like all these things um, I was introduced to a uh, a barrister practicing and still practicing at the intellectual property bar, another grazing, who turns out to be another grazing venture. Of course, I don't think that was the case at the time. And following my discussion with that person, I then realized that perhaps this was the right area for me to practice in. But of course, it's when you conceive an idea when you're at a certain stage in your career, you, you don't realise, of course, that the bar is quite a difficult place, quite a difficult career to get into. But it's very important, I think, to to get to conceive the idea. And it was through that discussion that I thought, right, maybe I will have a go at this. And what role did the inn play for you in facilitating that move? Gray's Inn awards scholarships to individuals who wish to pursue a career at the bar. And as has been discussed on this podcast many times, the studies alone present a financial challenge. And I know from my own experience at bar school that there were quite a significant amount of people coming to the bar later in life than me. And it was very refreshing to have the mix of backgrounds that people have at bar school. But of course, people who are further in their lives have extra challenges in pursuing a career at the bar and often have more responsibilities, be it children or mortgages. And so I'm interested to know how the inn facilitated your career change and assisted you with it. You know, when I look back, I, I realise that the inn was absolutely fantastic at getting me off the ground. Uh, and I'll tell you why, and this is going to be, sound very bizarre to you, but I, I interviewed for a loan, and I think it was one of the scholarship loans at the time, and the Grey's Inn um, gave me that loan, which was an interest-free loan. And I and I know this is really difficult to believe, and I'm going to sound like I <laughs> had sort of attempted to, to write off the loan. Um, later, I was rung up when I was working in-house at uh, a company called Dunlop Slattinger as in-house counsel, and I got a phone call from Grey's Inn, completely out of the blue, uh, saying um, something like 10 years ago we'd... Um, um, giving you a loan when you started out at your career at the bar, which was a very valuable loan, um, uh, and would you mind repaying it? And I'd completely, I know this is going to sound bizarre, but I'd completely forgotten that they'd actually done that. But as as everyone in those days, you weren't 
generally paying for your career like you are today. And the loan, so I had lower overheads than a lot of students, uh, would-be barristers, um, nowadays undertake when beginning a career at the bar. And the money was still incredibly valuable. And I think just, just being given the money is sufficient to make you feel that this is a path worth undertaking because it's almost like a, a reinforcement that you, you might not be doing the wrong, that you, you might be doing the right thing. That's right. You sit in front of a panel of esteemed barristers when you interview for scholarships and when they decide to make an investment in you, it gives you a great boost of confidence that maybe you're not so wrong about your ability to pursue a career at the bar. So it's a great accolade to have under your belt just for your confidence heading into pupillage interviews. But you know that someone, a valuable opinion at that, thinks that you're able to do it. And they've demonstrated that to you by investing a lot of money and resources in you to help you along the way. That's absolutely right. And it's invaluable when you are in pupillage interviews, when you can refer to, as you rightly say, um, a, a an investment of scholarship of some form from you're in is a real endorsement that you're in and as you say um the great and the good are effectively endorsing your career choice so um although my career toy my career path is a little bit different i didn't go i didn't go immediately into the uh the self-employed bar as it's called now um at that time but i arrived slightly later than most people when you worked as a lawyer in the Magic Circle firm and had that city lawyer life, was it IP law at that stage that you were already specialising in? I, I'd made the decision, I've been speaking to um, my friend at the IP bar, as I, as I told you, Alana, that, um, that I was, it seemed that IP was the right thing to do, having had a scientific background or a scientific degree, a science degree under my belt. Um, so I then decided that was it. I really, I felt I was very interested in science and I was extremely fascinated by law. And I thought the marriage of the two subjects was perfect uh, for me. So I had pretty much made up my decision as soon as I, I'd met a member of Grey's Inn, actually. So I would say there were actually two things. Not only was it, I think initially it was actually meeting a member of Grey's Inn that assisted me in my career choice. And then secondly, the endorsement provided by Grey's Inn in the form of that scholarship. And it's, it's quite remarkable, actually, that something so small, just a conversation with someone, so drastically changed the direction of your life, essentially. Yes. I don't know about um, other people, but when I walk in, as I did then, and I can almost picture it now, walked into the, the hall at Grey's Inn for lunch, which is where uh, we met, I just was quite overawed by... I, dare I say it, the sort of majesty of the location and the and and the very nature of the profession. It just it just struck me as a fantastic profession to enter. And I would say, even all after all these years, uh, you know, um, after all these years of practice, I still think it's fascinating uh, as a profession. I think so too. And and something that is really important to note is that Grey's, particularly as an inn, is one that allows for students and others wishing to come to the bar to make those initial connections that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise make with people who are already there and already established. And those networking opportunities and even just having one contact who can mentor you in any way, it's just so extremely valuable. 
I think it's absolutely critical um, because you can then try and make decisions along the path of your career um, that uh, you can, uh, when you make those decisions, you can do so with the advice of someone who's got enormous experience. But it's always important to remember that no two no two careers are the same. So you can you will get advice from someone whose career path might have been very very different. Um, but nevertheless, just having that assistance is vital in making those those decisions. Before we move on to talk about your practice, I must give a disclaimer. I would be unable to share one iota of knowledge about IP or trademark law with you. I didn't ever study the subject at undergraduate or on the bar course, and it's not an area of law that I've come across in mooting either. And so I'm very keen to find out more about what exactly a practice specialising in this niche looks like. Can you discuss what an IP practice comprises and perhaps give an example of what a bread and butter case might be for you? Yes. Well, having discussed what I think I, what everyone would consider to be the high end, as it were, of intellectual property, which is patent work, which is the scientific area, um, actually the bread and butter of intellectual property uh, exists around what are trademark cases, those are brand name cases, and copyright infringement cases. I think it's fair to say that they form the bread and butter of intellectual property. And a great deal of that work starts uh, and takes place within what's known as the Intellectual Property Office of the United Kingdom, uh, where trademarks and patents are filed. So I would say the bread and butter part of my work is is assisting clients in trying to get their intellectual property, as it were, recorded officially on an official register in respect of, don't to get too technical about it, those part, those types of intellectual property which require registration. So that that is very much trademarks formed by, by far the greatest majority of work. And um, over the years, I have probably done more trademark cases, I'd say, than than copyright or, or patent or, you know, so just about more than copyright, but a, a lot more than patent work, I'd say. A normal trademark case um, will either be when you apply for a trademark and you want to obtain a registered trademark, you find that somebody else in the marketplace has something very similar and they object to you possessing a right to that trademark. And then you end up at a, a hearing in the United Kingdom Intellectual Property Office. Um, and what's interesting about the United Kingdom intellectual properties is it's now located in Wales. So a lot of the disputes take place uh, by teleconference. And it's interesting that that is now uh, seemingly during this crisis, the preferred method, of course, of hearing disputes. But for the intellectual property office, it's actually the standard method of dealing with um, these, these, these hearings which is by teleconference, and it has been for many years. And that's very interesting. So all of the IP barristers have a complete head start on any specific type of advocacy necessary to master for teleconference hearings then? I would, I would, I would say that, yes, I, I know that's a grand claim to, to fame and experience, and it's probably regrettable in these current circumstances that people now feel you know, that we have to use that these systems in order 
to undertake hearings. But yes, I would say the intellectual property bar is pretty well versed in um, teleconferences and telephone hearings. And do you find that this speeds up the administration of the law in the area? Or do you find that these sorts of issues still take an enormous amount of time to resolve? I think it is it is it is quite speedy. And I know I know I'm sort of slightly jumping ahead in our discussion, but I I, I think it is quite speedy if you're not dealing with the cross-examination or examination in chief of live witnesses. So most of the hearings in the intellectual property office involve do not involve witnesses in the flesh, but their evidence in the form of written witness statements. So in those hearings, it is because you're, you don't actually have to question witnesses, live witnesses, everything can be done on paper. And the, the two principal methods of all of the, the sort of documents in the case, the factual documents are on paper, and you can, you can scan a what we physically call a bundle and send it to the intellectual property office and then when it comes to the law we can file a bundle of authorities and send that in paginated form scanned and sent to the intellectual property office and the relevant hearing officer has those documents on his on his computer and we can just refer to both those types of documents those electronic bundles at the hearing you, you just mentioned a hearing officer. Is that who makes the decision in these cases? Is it a single decision maker or, or a panel? So these are hearing officers who are civil servants who make decisions on incredibly important issues. I mean, you know, within my, within my field, they appear very important, whether a particular could be a multinational or an individual owns a patent or a trademark or a, or a design. Uh, for an article, and their decisions are subject to review either by by a uh, a barrister appointed as the someone called the appointed person, or the Chancery Division of the High Court by a Chancery Division judge. And would it be right then to say that on the basis of so many teleconference hearings, the majority of these hearings would involve the use of e-bundles? paperless working and so very rarely you would be using paper bundles you're absolutely right um i i would say nowadays that a great deal of material is now sent by email and and in electronic form and it really comes down to the personal preferences of the practitioner uh, personally i just need to obtain the confidence or garner the confidence to use electronic bundles at hearings, because that is the only point in the process of litigation where someone might press the print button and then print off a bundle for court. But the courts are now perfectly capable in the intellectual property courts. In fact, I think um, another grazing venture, a judge in the intellectual property courts, is very keen on us moving wholesale into electronic bundles even within the court context. Personally, I think it's it's an issue as if one is coming to a cliff edge because in court, I like to have physical bundles in front of me. So uh, outrageously, I still press the print button just before we go into court to print off all the bundles. But in reality, it's about confidence with the electronic systems, you know, ha- having the bundles in electronic form on your on your laptop. 
and knowing that you can re rely on on that system and it really is a, a, a i hate to say it and it sounds ages for the matter of 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 a barrister's um experience um and i i'm sure i could move entirely to paperless documents it just needs me to make that serious effort but for for younger practitioners um uh, more junior to myself i think they would probably already done it you know it's it's very interesting. I belong to the generation that would be big into the use of technology and e-bundles would be no issue at all. But there is something in my mind as well that I think I will be the same as you. You just feel more assured if you have the paper in front of you. I suppose it's the old age debate of whether or not to read the book or use a Kindle. But when you think about it, those fears are somewhat irrational because as much as your online system could shut down and the screen, it, it could just flicker at you in the middle of your submissions, you could also easily spill a coffee all over the one paper copy that you have and now it's useless to you. And there's, there's also the risk of leaving it somewhere or losing it and it falling into the wrong hands. And moving to e-bundles actually removes a lot of the concerns that there are about paper bundles. And then obviously the ease of the use that comes with e-bundles is hoped to be a lot better. But whether or not it is entirely depends on the confidence of the practitioner, as you say. And everyone is different and everyone has a different level of skill in navigating these e-bundles. And so for many, paper bundles will just remain the easier and the simpler way to practice. It, 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 almost certainly. And, and in some of the cases we do where you can have... I, and I don't understate it, roomfuls of documents uh, in some very large cases, um, you know, it can be floor to ceiling and many walls of lever arch files in the big cases, then it really it doesn't make sense to have physical bundles around an entire courtroom when you can have them simply on a, on a processor. So... Um, I, 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 I wholly agree with you. I think we will be moving uh, in that direction. And, and I wonder whether we, and, and it might already be taking place, forgive me, that we train advocates now, barristers, to use electronic documentation. Maybe there needs to be, um, for me personally, more training in that regard, because I think um, once I'm on top of it, it's just, the con it's just when you're cross-examining live in court, and you you're 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 listening to the witness and you're poised to refer a witness to a document you've got you haven't got a lot of a lot of time so you've got to be certain you're going to find it and it's just that scenario where the confidence because you don't want to delay the court it, it, you know and the judge gets upset if you're taking ages to find something but no doubt for those who practice very easily for le from electronic documents, they have no difficulty with it. Mm, you, you, you mentioned the big cases, the cases involving the room full of documents. And I've noted from your Chambers profile that you've you've worked with some huge brands, Monsoon, McQueen, Ted Becker, Office Shoes and Iceland, to name but a few. How do you deal with the pressure that comes with representing some of the biggest brand names in the world? Uh, I would say that when you're when you're dealing with some cases, you really, I think the pressure moves up the chain because you feel the pressure from those instructing you, and then you feel, and it's almost infectious that you feel the pressure when when you're on your feet in court, and it is it is it can be um, I hate to say it quite stressful. Um, 
but I but I but I think the 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 issue is one just has to sort of grin and bear it uh, that always in all cases in a courtroom you and we teach it a great deal at Gray's Inn you have to be prepared and so you have to spend multiple many multiples of hours in chambers getting on top of your 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 case before you go into the courtroom to present it until you are so au fait with the facts that you know that you can handle hopefully any issue that's going to arise and it's and it's preparation which is the key to overcoming courtroom fear i'd say and so how many hours do you think then that you would spend preparing for a bread and butter case? How do you divide your time between preparation and presentation, if you like? Now, this is going to shock a great many, many, probably going to shock a great many criminal barristers who and, and family law barristers who turn cases around and in, in a very short period of time. I usually tell um, my, um, my uh, team in chambers to give me a week, at least a week, for in advance of a standard hearing and if it's if it's something if it's a trial i would ask for two weeks almost exclusive preparation before going into court that's a sort of rule of thumb uh, other barristers i've heard who i've spoken to at gray's inn tell me that you should spend six times as much time in preparation than you do in court and i would i would say personally that's an underestimate Oh, gosh, I can feel the jealousy of the criminal and family law barristers listening to this now. Well, they, they simply, they got a higher volume of, of cases. They got enormous pressures and they don't have the luxury of time. But I, I suppose what I would do is I will not, I would sort of control it such that I'm not undertaking anything serious during that run into a hearing. And how many cases do you find yourself working on at once then? I would say it's it's not as as large as one thing. I think about ten, I'd say generally, all at various stages of what, making their way through the courts. I mean, it can sometimes it can vary, but usually about ten. Right. I want to talk now about your work as a mentor and advocacy trainer at King's College London. Can you tell me about what this work involves? Yes. So. Primarily, I studied my my degree, my pharmacology degree at King's College London, um, and my work as a mentor involves King's College students contacting me, and it usually goes without saying that they will come into chambers and spend a week as a mini pupil with me, so they can get the feel. Sometimes it might, they might not be law students; they could be students from other disciplines who who will come to chambers and will spend a week. And just I and during a week when I'm, um, you know, as it were giving mini pupils to a to a, a mini pupil, I put them to work on a real case of their own, so that they get a real sense of what it feels like. And I give them a deadline to produce some sort of document, usually an advice on a case. And I know they might never ever in their careers have done that type of work before. And it's the first time, and I tell them, don't worry what, it, what you produce, but your deadline is 4pm Friday. And they usually start on the Monday and they deliver some document. And then during the course of the week, as my, as my practice is, 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 is doing its usual thing, I then interrupt their day with other issues and give them, and, it, and, it, and actually I find, I find working with students is invaluable. They do tremendous work. 
And I hope it's a quid pro quo because they also they need to help me enormously. I hope they say I, I help them by giving it a real feel for what um, practice is like. So um, that that's one part of what I do as a mentor. And the second thing I do is probably just answer, give career advice uh, uh, in relation to individuals. And then I also uh, judge moots for King's College. And finally, uh, I might give the odd talk to would-be barristers. I, I loved moving at university and I loved advocacy classes in bar school and advocacy training with the inn while I was at bar school. And I was always surprised, even at that stage, at bar school, when everyone in your class is wanting to be a barrister, that's the only reason you're there. And some people at that stage still had a dislike of advocacy and it always concerned me because from my perspective, it feels as though advocacy skills are the fundamental of everything that a barrister is, you know, the ability to think on your feet, to communicate effectively, both orally and also then in written form. And so would you agree that advocacy is the ultimate skill that you require if you're interested in a career at the bar? And that doesn't mean now that you have to be proficient in any sort of legal advocacy but you at least have to be sure in yourself that you have the ability to get up and speak in front of people without any concern. I, I, I would say that if you were intending to undertake the bar, you have to have a certain passion for advocacy. It is unquestionably nerve wracking. And I, I would be very surprised if there were any practitioner in any area of the law who didn't find it nerve wracking. I still, to this day, uh, in that first minute, find it. I don't know about you, Alana. I find it very nerve wracking in that, that first minute. And it's funny because it's often said that what barristers write down in their blue notebooks is their own name and then the name of their opponents and then the respective parties. So they don't forget the first line, uh, and sometimes write out, write out, write out the first words of what they're going to say, just to get over that first minute. And um, so I always describe it as a sort of love-hate relationship. When a barrister isn't in court, generally they are terribly upset because they feel they ought to be, and when they are in court, they're cursing because they feel they're overwhelmed with work. So it, 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 there's never a a, a happy. Um, uh, position. But nevertheless, I think the advocacy is a fantastic and very important aspect of being a barrister. Having said that, you can practice at the bar, of course, in some areas where you don't have to uh, go into court at all. But I think it would be a little bit concerning if you came to a pupillage interview and said, well, I'm not really terribly keen on advocacy. I think even in those uh, areas of, of, of law where you might not have to undertake too much advocacy, I think you know it's going to pop up at some point. Uh, just, just listening to you there, Professor Engelman, a funny story has actually just popped into my mind. Just as you mentioned the nerves and, and that sort of fear that comes over you whenever you stand up to speak. And I remember we were trialling the use of e-bundles because in bar school they they asked us to use paper bundles for the most part in advocacy classes and advocacy assessments. And I think it was because they had to give everyone a fair and equal standing, you know, and there was no way for them to check really what you had on your iPad screen or your laptop. You know, you could have been running an auto queue for all anyone would know. Mm -hmm. 
But there was one class where they said, right, we want you to practice with e-bundles because realistically your career is going to involve the use of these in court. And uh, I, I stood up and, and wanted to start to speak, but the palms of my hands were so sweaty that I couldn't get the touchscreen to work on, on my iPad. <laughs> I was trying to use my iPad to tap on things and page down, but it just wouldn't work. And I thought this <laughs> is something that I have just not prepared for. My hands are sweating so much that I can't even use my e-bundle at all. <laughs> but, uh, but I definitely agree with what you said about having the first line that you need to say written down. Even with presenting these podcasts, I always have to have the first line written out. And when I start to speak, then I just hope that the nerves will subside and the natural flow of conversation will take over. But the first line is always so important because you do just you just be so nervous. Absolutely. And when I, you know, part of my job is training. Uh, I'm a grazing trainer of um, barristers at various stages and um, I always say to them that, generally speaking, everyone is nervous. First of all, point one, everyone is nervous. And point two is that, generally speaking, almost 90% of the time, only you know you're nervous. And other people can't really tell, but you think they can. But often as not, they can't. Tell me if I'm wrong about that, Alana, but that's how I think about it. Yeah, well, I, I mean... I often feel as though I can hear a definite shake in my voice or that my knees are trembling so hard that the ground is shaking beneath me. But as you say, also in the situation, I think it's important to remember that everyone is quite concerned with themselves as well. And when you're in court, your opponent is unlikely to be sitting there evaluating how nervous or anxious you look. Rather, they're probably extremely nervous and anxious themselves and worried about how they're going to come across. So I think once you get over the fear of worrying about what other people think and instead just try to do your best, I think that really helps. Absolutely. And there's nothing, I mean, quite as exquisite as having a very high level of stress running a case and then at the end of it succeeding uh, in, in very difficult circumstances. There, there's nothing you can quite describe by that experience. So I would say that if it wasn't like that, we wouldn't um, have such a good system of advocacy. And the reason we all feel nervous is because the courts have to make sure we deliver a, a, an appropriate standard, a good standard. And you can't really you can't really deliver that standard unless you're on your on your toes, as it were, on your tender hooks. In Legal 500, you are praised for robust advocacy. What does robust mean to you? And what would be your best advocacy advice to a pupil who has just got on their feet? Robust advocacy, I would I would say, and it's very kind of those people to have described it that way. You need to exercise judgment and tenacity. Judgment is the exercise of of your judgment as to which points you feel are right, rather than pursuing points before a court that are wrong because if they're wrong all you're going to do is irritate the court or the tribunal uh, by pursuing something zealously which might not actually be very ultimately a very good issue a very good point for you i beg your pardon and what you do by doing that is irritate judges because you're spending time on things which you shouldn't really be doing so that is a difficult thing to achieve judgment is one of the most difficult issues that um, 
we all have to grapple with. But the second issue, if you think your point is a good one and needs to be pursued, you have to be quite rigid in ensuring that you don't let it go because the judge in, takes an initial view of, of, of that point that you're wrong, but in fact, he might be wrong. And if, he, if in your judgment, it's a good point, you need to stick to your guns. And so I would say it's very difficult, you know, because you, of course, we're all limited by our own experience, but you need to exercise judgment first. And then when you've decided this is important, you need to stick to it and not be taken off on a tangent when it could be vitally important to your client's case. So really, it's the importance of choosing your battles then and the battles that you do choose, you fight those to the death. To, to the death, to the, if you get to a point where you, you know a judge really has decided against you, then you have to accept that for your client, this point needs to be pursued on appeal rather than before that judge. And that's about having your antennae up because we called it judge reading, where you know where you've pursued something so hard and the judge, a judge is still against you, then you have to accept. Because if you keep going, again, you, you walk into the territory of irritation and that could be tricky because when your next point, which might be something else, the judge has already decided you're just irritating. Right. And do you think that the ability to decide then when to leave a point comes with experience of doing big cases? Because... I can only imagine that for pupils who are just on their feet right now, you just be so eager to please. You know, you're not wanting to let your instructing solicitor down by having not fought a point with a judge. And so the ability to stand back and say, OK, in this case, this point needs to be left alone or else, as you say, I'm going to get into the territory of irritation. I'm going to create a bad name for myself with this judge for the rest of my career. But surely the confidence to make those decisions and stick to your guns must grow as your practice grows well first of all i would say and and i i say it very tentatively that i i de- i don't think judges will hold it against you for the rest of your career i i think they they have like us have good days and bad days um but um there is also an issue which is all very difficult when you're in your early days of practice is actually having that conversation with those instructing you saying I know you want me to pursue this point A, but if I pursue this point A, the judge is going to lose confidence in me when I come on to point B. And I always liken the role of an advocate to the role, and I know some people hate this analogy, of a salesman. If, if, he's, if, if a salesman is selling a car, for example, he wants, he, and, it, and it's a car with low mileage and it's, and it's rust proof, he doesn't want to misrepresent something that's obviously true, which it's, it's, it's in a ghastly colour of green or whatever it is, uh, and say, no, it's an absolutely beautiful colour. So you need to have a balanced view of your case and put it very fairly. And if you put your case fairly and reasonably, doing your, your best points with that sort of gusto, you're probably not going to go far wrong. Professor Engelman, the final thing that I wanted to discuss with you is just with your career changes in the past and your role as a mentor and lecturer alongside your career at the bar. Are there any other projects that you would like to do in the future? And what hopes and aspirations do you have for your future? I should have read my notes better because it's one question I haven't quite prepared for, which is what 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 would what would I like to do? Um, I, I'm still fascinated by 
uh, being a barrister. And the, the issues are that there's always the next interesting case that comes through the door. So when I look back, I've had some really fascinating cases. You know, probably one of the high points, I suppose, was when I argued copyright infringement on Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire um, in, in a case against um, J.K. Rowling and Bloomsbury Publishing, where it's just the underlying facts were fascinating and the law was fascinating. So I suppose that I, I need to sit down and really think about what is out there for the future. But the way the, way the practice of the bar unfolds itself is that there's always some next fascinating case that uh, that comes through the door, which is all cons all consuming and, and fascinating. So for the present, I I suppose, and I know it's unedifying. I'd probably like to continue as is. You know, I think that is a lovely thing to hear, though, especially for someone and people listening who are just starting out in their career at the bar. The idea that we will be content and happy and not wanting for anything else is a really lovely thing to hear. And it excites me that so many of the barristers who I have the pleasure of speaking to through this podcast are actually really happy in their careers and they really enjoy what they do genuinely. And it makes me very excited to have my own sense of fulfillment that comes with the work that we do. And that brings us to the end of our conversation today then, Professor Engelman. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's been really, really lovely to speak to you and I've really enjoyed the insight into intellectual property law. Thank you. Alana, I want to thank you very much for letting me do this interview. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.com.